Let's open our books up to the, to the Bibles up to Acts chapter 14. We'll be reading from there in, in just a moment. Um, as many of you all have noticed, I'm missing my better half. Uh, Holly and the boys are, are at East End this morning. Uh, East End has got a, a three-in-one gospel meeting in VBS and singing or, or something going on this, uh, these next couple of days. And they have asked uh, Holly and myself, along with some others, to come and teach some of the children's classes going on at that time. And so Holly is there this morning teaching her class. And uh, we will be there the Monday through Wednesday, uh, continuing that with, uh, with the work that's going on there. And I've, I've had a challenge this week. Because amongst um, trapping for, uh, for UK with Carl and then splitting that between multiple Bible studies this week and, and swim class for Madden and just so much going on, I thought I've got to write three sermons and, and three classes and I've only got five days to do it and I just don't know how I'm going to make that work. And, or I'm sorry, two sermons and three classes. I just don't know how I'm going to do all that. And, uh, and at some point during the week, uh, a lesson that... My um, algebra, uh, college algebra teacher, actually I should say remedial math, that's what it was in college, my uh, college algebra or college math 101 uh, taught me was keep it simple, stupid. And I needed that. I needed to say, stop for a minute and say, why am I trying to do all this when our lesson this morning could just be my, what I turn into my three classes for the kids at, at East End. So that's what we're going to do. And, uh, and I apologize because some of my, my fonts are going to be wonky in this, and it may be hard to see um, as we go through this. Uh, there's some technical issues, and if technical issues happen, we'll just turn it off and go on. But that's what I want to do. I want to dig into the class that we're going to be giving these kids the next couple of days and specifically learn how this passage applies to us here at Lake Street. That should be the purpose of our Bible study. When we open up God's Word, it is not that we are opening it up to see how we can apply it to somebody else and how we can, can, can kind of mold them into our image of what they should be. It's how can I mold myself into the image of God that is depicted in His Word? How can I learn from His Word and see how this applies in my life? Now granted, yes, as we do that, we will learn how we can help other people do that as well. But primarily, that is the use of God's Word and how we will use it today. In Acts chapter 14, we have a section of Paul's first missionary journey. He has left Antioch, uh, kind of his home base for all of his, all of his journeys where he's going to be leaving out from. And he's traveled over to Crete uh, or, or Cyprus, and now he's, he's headed up north uh, into Antioch of Pisidia. And, and now in Acts, uh, chapter 14, he's making his way to Iconium. And we learned several lessons during this, during this trip, especially in his next stop at Lystra. But I want you to see what happens in Iconium. There's a very divided reaction in this, in this place as he gets there and starts preaching the gospel. Read with me verses 1-7. through seven. It says, Now it happened at Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, 
To abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So this is the backstory to Lystra. This is how Paul winds up in Lystra. He goes to Iconium, and he begins doing what he does in almost every city. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to a place where he knows he can find spiritual people, people that are already geared up to know something about God, and says, let me talk to you about Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is doing, and this effort to do this is not only converting Jews, but it's converting Gentiles as well. They're starting to hear the message of Christ and listen to it. And I notice that what happens here in this time is that the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, they see the progress of Paul. Whenever we are making progress in the Lord, in our personal lives, in the lives of other people, don't be surprised when Satan starts to try to take effort here to stop that, to interrupt that, to draw our minds away, to distract us. And that's what happens. It says that they poisoned the minds. They, they They were speaking things that were disrupting the work that was going on there. And you know, Paul and Barnabas, if they had done what, what many preachers, what I would be tempted to do, okay, you know what? There's, there's hostility here. People are fighting against this. Time to dust the sandals, the dirt from my sandals and go on. But that's not what they do. It makes them determined. It makes them emboldened. They get in there and they say, all right, there is work to be done because there's people here that matter. There's hearts here that love God. And there's an enemy that's fighting against them. And we are going to fight against that. And so they get in there. They dig in and fight. And they work with them for a long time. But eventually, the work of of these unbelieving Jews shifts from simply poisoning the minds of the brethren to a physical attack, a physical assault on Paul and Barnabas and their company, and they decide, all right, now is the time for us to move on. And so they do, they, they take and they flee from there for their lives, and they reach Lystra. And this is where I, the majority of our lessons I, I want to draw our thoughts from this morning is what happens in Lystra. Because Lystra brings a very surprising and unexpected reaction to them. I just want you to put yourself in their shoes as we read about what's happening here in Lystra. In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw that Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus whose temple was in front of their city brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, He did not leave Himself without a witness. And that He did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul 
dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, he made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So, a very unexpected event happens in Lystra. Paul goes, and you notice he doesn't go straightway to the synagogue. At least it doesn't record it. Many have have, uh, questioned whether or not there even was a synagogue in Lystra. It was a very predominantly Gentile city, and so it's likely that there's no synagogue for him to go to, but there is a place where there are spiritually minded people. And Paul is, is, is out amongst them and sees this man who is crippled. And he sees something in the man. It says that he looks at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, he says with a loud voice, Stand up. And so he heals this man that's lame from birth. And, and what happens in regard to this? The people, they want to worship them. They see that. They, here's this guy. The guy's been crippled his whole life. And here these two people come in. A, uh, a man that's, that, that is, I would assume, likely better looking than Paul. Barnabas, because Paul describes himself in not the most, uh, in not the most flattering ways in, as far as physical appearance. So he comes in, and then you've got this other man that's doing all the speaking, and now he looks over at this guy and says, hey, you get up and walk. And he gets up and walks, and immediately they go, the gods. That's what this is. It's the gods. The gods have come down. It's Zeus and it's Hermes. Which again, you know, Zeus is always depicted as a very strong, tall, big man. Uh, makes me think, wonder what Barnabas actually looked like. Maybe he resembled that in some way. And again, Paul never really talks about himself looking that well. But they, they associate them with that. Barnabas is the chief, the king of the Greek gods. Paul is his spokesperson. And there was a legend in the Lystrian area that suggested maybe why they came to this conclusion. There was a legend that said that there was a time when Zeus and Hermes had came to the land, walked and visited through the land, and no one took them in. No one gave them any any place to stay. No one showed them any kindness or care save one old couple. And now these two figures have come in and they've they've healed this man. And it's possible they're thinking, we're not going to make the same mistake twice. Let's worship these guys. Let's do something to show these guys our, 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 our love and our appreciation for them because after all, they are gods. And at first, it seems like Paul and Barnabas aren't really doing much about this, doesn't it? It's not until this, the priests come, and I wonder if it's because they spoke to them in the Lyconian language. Maybe they didn't understand what they were saying. Maybe they didn't fully grasp exactly what's, what's the response here, what exactly is going on. But when the priests drag out the oxen to be sacrificed, The garland. Garland was something that you would throw over the neck of a royal person or a king or a god. It becomes very clear what they're doing. They're fixing to sacrifice these things not to God of heaven. They're sacrificing to us because they think we are the physical embodiments of these little statues that they have. These shrines. These idols. They think their idols have come to life. And thus Paul tells them not to do this. To turn away from these worthless things and turn to the living God. Now it is very important to see what Paul says there. The living God. I mentioned garland. They're putting the garland around their neck. The other use for garland is for a victim. They would put garland around someone who's about to be executed. Uh, that, that, that was uh, not 
um, unheard of in that day. It's very similar to Jesus having a crown of thorns put on His head. It's a way to mock. It's a way to humiliate. And so they would put a garland sometimes on a victim as well. So, I want you to think about that. Right now, you're in this situation where the people, the, the multitude around you, are, they're raising you up. You are the, these great gods of, of the pantheon of gods that they believe in. And you know you have to say something. You've got to say the hard things at the hard times. And they're already coming out to, ready to, to almost anoint you as a king. But that same anointment that they're about to put on you, that garland, it could very quickly become your hangman's noose. Because what you're going to say is not just, I'm not this God. What you're going to say is, this God is worthless. This God is useless. This God is dead. That's what he's about to tell them. That's what he's saying when he says, serve the living God. Because that statue that you have of Zeus is just a piece of rock. It has no ability. It hasn't provided rain. It hasn't provided food. But the God of heaven... He is the one that's been providing all of these things. He used to allow you to walk in this manner. But He was always there. He was always there giving you the things. And so Zeus is not the one that provides you happiness. Zeus is not the one that brings, brings security to you. Zeus is not the one that provides you with peace and joy and prosperity. That comes from the one living God, the God of heaven. And with all of that being said... The people still want to sacrifice to them. It says that He could scarcely stop them from doing all this. <clears throat> and so, a short time after that, you have this, this, this conflict right off the bat that's going on. Them telling them their gods are not living. There is one living God that you should be worshiping. And now, they've said that, it obviously hasn't had a profound effect because there's still there those that want to sacrifice to them. But now the Jews show up. The Jews show up and they're going to stir up trouble. And I imagine they don't have to try very hard to get these guys to see we should kill this guy. Because what has he been here telling us? He's been here telling us that Zeus is not real. He's been here telling us that Hermes is not real. That all of these gods that we serve, they're not real. There's only one God. He's the king over all things. And these other gods that I serve, they're just a bunch of rocks. They're dead. They're useless and worthless. I imagine they don't have to try real hard to provoke this crowd to the point in which they will take Paul and they will stone him. And I want you to see what happens when it says they stoned him in verse 19 and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I'm afraid that sometimes we read that and think, well, they knocked Paul out. They knocked him out with a rock and drug him out of the city and left him out there. This age, this time is not as medically um, furthered as we are today. There have been advances in medicine. There have been advances in, in, in health care that go far beyond where they are at that time. But let me tell you something you know how to tell if somebody's dead or alive in Lystra. At the very least, you can poke them in the eyeball. You've seen, well, what is that, uh, Peter Rabbit? You seen, everybody here seen Peter Rabbit? That's how they check and see if the guy's alive. They know how to find out if somebody's alive or not. If he's not alive, drag him out of the city. We don't leave a dead guy laying around here. I don't know if Paul was truly dead. I know he was dead enough that they thought so. They said, we've killed him. 
We've killed the heretic. We've killed the guy that come in here, drag him out of the city, leave him out there for the vultures to eat. It wasn't that Paul just got knocked out and then got really lucky. This is God working because God has a plan for Paul. Paul's going to be going to Rome. Paul can't die here. God's got more work for Paul to do. And so all the disciples uh, that are with him are gathered around him, and Paul raises up. Now, he's been stoned. I'm going to tell you right now, you thought the whole poking somebody in the eye, that's kind of like, oh, why did you say that? Stoning is a lot worse. They're taking fist-sized rocks at best and pelting him in the head with them. This man is bloody. There, there are parts of his skin that, should, that are ripped open. There are parts of his inside that probably shouldn't be seen that are visible. This looks really bad. On top of that, he's been drugged through the city. So we have a bloody and dirty Saul, who very likely was just dead a few minutes ago, stand up. If it's me, let's get out of here. I am done. I can't believe what these guys have done to me. I can't believe what these Jews have talked them into doing. I'm through with this. That's not what Paul does. He marches back into Lystra, spends the night there. They go to Derby, and he does great works in Derby. And it doesn't seem like the Jews follow him there. If they do, it's not recorded. Derby is almost 40 miles away from Lystra, so maybe they went, yeah, that's not far enough. He's, he's out of here. But then he comes back. He marches right back through. Now let me tell you something. To get to Antioch of his home base, uh, Antioch over in, in near, near the Mediterranean Sea, uh, to get to that Antioch from Derby, if you're looking at it on a map, you take a right. Paul takes a left. He turns and goes the opposite direction from his hometown where he is ultimately headed to go back to Lystra. Why does he do that? We see that in some of the next sections in his return trip. It says at the end of verse 21, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And when they sailed from Antioch, or from there they sailed to Antioch where they had commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they come to gather the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and all that He had opened the door and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They stayed a long time there with the disciples. We see that this is kind of wrapping up their journey. Getting ready to go back to Antioch, we're going to give a report of everything that's happened, and we're going to preach a lot of places on the way, but especially, we are going back to Lystra. We have got to go back to Lystra, because I've got something I've got to say to the people there. And I want you again to think about that. Paul was recently stoned in Lystra. And I imagine, we don't know how much time passed between the account of Acts chapter 14, verse 19 and verse 21. We don't know how much time. It's possible that he is healed up completely from physically being stoned. But that leaves emotional and mental scars that don't go away overnight. That leaves... You talk to someone who's experienced something very traumatic, especially someone who's experiencing something like PTSD. Those... Those thoughts, those feelings, the things that happen in that, they're hard to forget. Paul takes all of that and says, look, I'm still going to Lystra. Why? Because the people there are important. 
Because there's people there that love God. And they need to know more. I wasn't done. There's more work to be done there. And so he goes and he does two things. He strengthens the people that are there and he sets up elders in the churches along the way. He shows them. And this is very important. Very important. Because Paul could have wrote a letter to Lystra and said, through many hardships, you enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think that probably would have been pretty effective. But how much more effective the guy that they saw get stoned come back and say, not just you, not just you entered the kingdom of heaven, me. I entered the kingdom of heaven through many hardships. I'm not afraid to walk the walk that I'm telling you to walk. I can do it. And you can do it too. We have to do it together. That's what Paul is showing them. It's not going to come easy. There's going to be hard. There's going to be people that don't like you. There's going to be people that want to, want to take away your property. There's going to be people that want to stone you. But you all be faithful and you keep serving God. That's the picture that Paul is painting as he strolls back into Lystra because he says, I've got more work to do. So many times today, so many times today, we think people are called, we think that we are called to a carefree gospel. You turn your life over to Christ, everything's going to be better. He's come to give you joy and peace and you don't have anything to worry about. Paul's saying that is 100% not true. I turned my life to Christ. I was doing the things that He wanted to do more so than just about anybody else and I was stoned and almost killed. Maybe even killed. That is the truth. That is what we can expect if we are following God. Yes, Jesus came to give us peace. He came so that our joy will be fulfilled. But our peace and our joy and our happiness are contingent upon suffering. He invites us to share in the suffering of Christ. And just like He suffered, we're going to suffer too. Paul is exemplifying that. And he calls them to endure it. Not just because I said so. Not just because I told you that Christ did. Because that's the example I'm setting for you. And I want you to follow my example as well. But not only did he do that, he also set up elders. It says that he appointed elders. We might use other words in that same, uh, in that same, uh, same office uh, of the church. You might say he appointed overseers. He appointed bishops. He appointed shepherds. He appointed pastors. All of these words are the same word for the same office. And it's very important this sentence that is recorded there in, 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 verse, uh, <clears throat> in verse 23. Because we learn several things from that sentence. Number one, we learn that He appointed a plurality of elders. It doesn't say that He went to each church and He appointed an elder. It said that He appointed elders. This idea that you can have one pastor that runs the church, one elder that is over the church is anti-scriptural. Over and over again, God is saying there is a plurality of men, and not just a plurality of men, not just I want several men making the decisions for this church, but I want them in taking care of their own churches. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the idea of these archbishop or an archduke or someone that is over top of several churches, a council that is over top of several churches. He says there, he went back and he appointed elders in every church. Each one of them needed their own set of elders, their own set of pastors. And the pastors in Lystra, they're not going to go to Derby and say, this is how you are going to act, this is how you are going to do things. They're in charge 
of taking care of the spiritual needs of the flock in Lystra. The same thing is true in Iconium. The same thing is true in Antioch. And everywhere where elders were established, that's what we see. We see that there was a plurality of them. We see that they were there for every church. But you know what we also see? We also see that this church that was established in Lystra, again, a Gentile city, predominantly Gentile, that means they're not going to have a huge knowledge of the Old Testament. It's not like there's a bunch of Jews there and they said, let's, let's get the Jews converted first, then the Gentiles. The same city that stones Paul a very short time later, Paul goes back and there's men there that are qualified to serve as elders. That should speak volumes to us. That should speak volumes to us about what it takes to shepherd a flock in the eyes of God. Are there qualifying parts of being an elder? Absolutely. But sometimes we make those a lot harder than the Bible ever does. A very short time later, Paul was able to go back and find men that could shepherd the flock in Lystra. And he set it up because there is a very real need for elders at a church. It is important. And so we might ask, how then does all of this stitch into my life? How do I get connected to what happened in Lystra? And how do I learn from that? And how do I start applying that to myself? Well, there's a few things that I want us to learn from all this. Number one is majority rule does not always equal righteousness. And we might think about that in sense of what the world does. We might think about that, you know, we look around to the world and, and there's a lot of things that the world thinks is righteous. And if we just join in with the majority, we're going to be with that group that's walking towards that wide gate. Jesus says narrow is the way. It's hard for people. There's not few, there are few who will find the gate leading to eternal life. But I want us to challenge narrowing that down. I mean, that, that's, that's easy to look to the world and go, wow, we can't do things the way the majority of the world does it. But what about the majority of the church? The majority of our families, our friends, our loved ones. We look to them and say they're making decisions and I'm just going to follow their decisions. That doesn't make righteousness. Sometimes they're making decisions that are righteous. There are families that are here today. And if you are here simply because this is where my family always went. This is where mom and dad always went. This is what mom and dad always did. And I'm doing it for that reason. You're not following God. You're following your family. It might be leading you in the same direction, but it's not the same thing. We have to be very clear on that. Majority rule, even when majority rule is right, doesn't always equate to righteousness. We have to follow God. And following God is going to bring hardships. Choosing to follow God, choosing to do what God calls for us to do is going to bring things that are difficult. Sometimes when a follower become, when, a, when, a, when a person becomes a follower of Christ, when they make that decision that I'm going to set aside the things of this world, I'm going to set aside the sins in my life, I'm going to be baptized into the death of Christ and be raised up to newness of life almost immediately. That very hour, that very day, that very week, they are faced with tough decisions. Tough decisions at work. Will I still do the same, th same things that I did last week or will I change? Will I truly repent and grow? Tough decisions in family. Tough decisions in vices. 
I've always enjoyed this, but can I continue to enjoy that? Can I continue to do these things and be a follower of Christ? Almost immediately, we are faced with hardships. And so what do we do with that? We listen to the words of Paul. Don't choose the useless. Don't choose the worthless things. That's what Paul and Barnabas is teaching in Lystra. That's the big thing that he's trying to get across to them before he's stoned and ran out of, and has to leave town. He's saying the idols that you're following, they are worthless in providing you what you really need and what you ultimately want. Now, it's very unlikely that any of us today have an idol of Zeus sitting in our closet that we make sacrifices to. An idol of, of, of Hermes or or any of the other gods of the Old Testament, Baal and Ashtaroth, I don't think that's happening. But it is very possible that distractions can function very much the same way as these gods of the, uh, of the Bible. And so I want to give you three useless gods that we oftentimes make sacrifices to today that will not provide for us the way that God can provide for us. The first one is the God of striving. The God of striving. This is that idea that I have to work. I have to be busy. I have to be doing something. I, my, my worth, my sense of fulfillment, my, my sense of accomplishment, all of these things are tied up in a three-letter word, and it's not G-O-D, it's J-O-B. And when we do that, we deceive ourselves. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying, when I say we have to work, I have to work, I'm not saying that we can just be lumps on a log that are going to sit over here and never do anything. We are commanded to provide for our families. We are commanded to be busy. We are commanded to work. We have to be people who work. But have we raised our jobs, have we raised our work <clears throat> up to a level that has effectively turned it into a distraction taking us away from the living God who creates, who provides, who loves. Now, when I start talking about that, inevitably, where people start going is, well, have I sinned if? Have I sinned if I take a job that maybe does things that maybe the church doesn't always agree on? Have I sinned if? I take a job that makes me miss worship services so I can be there for that job. I'm, I'm, when we start asking those questions, I'm telling you, number one, I can't answer that question. That's not a question you ask me. It's a question you ask yourself. But that's also the wrong question to ask. We're not starting in the right place. Let me give you some questions to ask. Some questions to ask would be, does my job, what all does my job call me to sacrifice? Because I'd be willing to bet it's more than just time away from this. Time away from the assemblies of, of His family who have come together to worship Him, who have come together to lift one another up. Does my job cause me to sacrifice personal study? We're commanded to do that. Does my job cause me to sacrifice time in prayer? Does my job cause me to sacrifice time with my family? That they need me to be setting an example for them at that time? Does my job cause me to sacrifice teaching the lost? That's not just the evangelist's job. That's all of our jobs. Is what all am I sacrificing to my job? 
That's the first question I want you to ask. When you, when you start approaching this and you're trying to determine, is that me? Am I serving the God of striving? Is it possible that that's the case for me? What all am I sacrificing to my job? And then the second question I want you to ask is this. Will I be comfortable on the day of judgment giving that excuse to God? And I want you to think about that in light of Luke 14. In Luke 14, Jesus tells us a parable. He talks about a great banquet that a master is having. And he has invited many people to come. And one by one, they come to him and they say, I can't come to your banquet because I've got work that I have to do. I've got family matters that are very important. I've got loved ones that need my attention. They have all of these excuses. And the picture that we see in Luke 14 is the master is not understanding. He looks at that with indignation. And he says, how dare they put these excuses above this banquet? Go out to the hedges. Go out to the, to, to the places of the world and find people who will not bring excuses to me, but will come to my banquet on the day of judgment. Will I be comfortable telling God, work stop me from doing what you commanded? We can't let work become the God that we sacrifice to. Again, have I sinned by missing worship? That's not the question I'm here to ask. That's not the question I'm here to answer. The questions that I'm calling you to ask is, what God am I serving more? As Jesus told us, we can't both love God and mammon. So let's pick. Which one am I going to serve? Which one is truly useless? And which one can provide me for me as the living God the things that I need? Tied very closely to this is the God of security. Oftentimes, this is the reason why we serve our jobs so much. Because if I don't do that, where am I going to find the things that I truly need? Where am I going to find the wealth that I must have to have the life that I have today? And again, we find a setting up of standards. Of this is going to be more important to me than this. Whatever those two things may be. And oftentimes it's this, my job, or, or whatever it is that's providing for me that security. Maybe, maybe it's not a job. Maybe it's a relationship. I find security in this relationship that I probably shouldn't be involved in. But that right there it provides me more security than I think the God of heaven, the living God, can provide me. So I'm going to keep holding to that. And what that ultimately boils down to is a lack of contentment. How many times do we sacrifice doing God's commandments instead of sacrificing our quality of life? It's a problem for us here in America. I can't fathom not having the life that I have. I, talk about me, I can't fathom not having the life that I have. But if it comes to it, which one will I sacrifice? Netflix, air conditioning, I mean, all of these comforts that we have, and they're comforts. 73, I'm still sweating. I want the air conditioner turned down even more. I know some of you all would freeze to death. They're comforts, though. Are we willing to sacrifice our comforts, or are we willing to sacrifice God's commandments? And ultimately, all of this boils down to really one God. It's the God that's been around since the beginning of time. It's the God of self. From the very beginning of time, the oldest religion prior to behind worshiping God, serving God, keeping His commandments, is humanism. Worshiping me. Doing what I want to do. If I want to do it, I can do it. 
That's exactly what, what Satan leans upon in the, in the garden. When he talks to Adam and Eve, and he says, don't you want to be like God? If you want it, you can have it. I know he said don't eat the fruit. That's just because he doesn't want you to be like him. If you want it, you can have it. Go get that fruit. And Eve said, I want it. And that happens still today. We say, this is what I want. I want to live the life that I live. I want to have the relationship that I have. I want to be married to the person that I'm married with. I want to do this. I want to do that. I, I, I want. And over and over again, God has been telling us, deny yourself and follow me. There's two gods there. Me, which is useless, worthless. I can't provide any of this stuff truly for myself. Or there's the living God of heaven. He says, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly and bring you true peace and true joy. So which one are we going to stir? Or are we going to serve? I want you to think about Paul when we think about this God of self. I want you to think about how Paul followed the living God. Paul went back to Lystra multiple times, even though that was very tough. Even though most people would say, there's no way on earth I'm going back to the place that they have stoned me and I'll possibly die there. I'm not doing that. And I want you to think ahead now to what happened. In Acts chapter 16, Paul makes a second trip. And in this second missionary trip, he visits Lystra. And you know what he finds in Lystra? He finds a strong church, a flourishing church, a church led by elders, and he finds a young man named Timothy. A young man who has great a great rep, uh, rapport with that church. They look at him and they say, this guy, this guy's busy doing the work of the Lord. Now, let's bring this back home to, to, to Lake Street. How many of you pray that we're going to be a strong church? How many of you pray that one day we're going to be led by elders? That we're going to, to study through these things and we're going to find those men that are qualified to lead us and that we're going to be set up the way God wants us to be. How many of you pray that these young children that are here are going to grow up and be strong members of the Lord's body and lead this church in the future? Then learn the lessons from Lystra. Learn the lessons of the people that said, you're right, these gods are useless. There is a living God. I will serve Him. I will follow Him. That's what we want to help you with this morning. If there is something in your life that, that you recognize as di distracting you from doing that, distracting you from serving the living God of heaven, then today is a good day. Today is a joyful day. Because a day is, today is a day that you can turn from that. And you can turn to follow Him. And know that if you do that, yes, Satan's going to try to stick his nose in and try to find ways to distract you from that. But that's what we're here for. And that's what prayer is here for. To lean upon and lean upon God and say, this is a hard life. We've been called to do hard things, but we're going to do them together as a family. And if we can help you this morning as a family, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.